Uh, meet me in Romans chapter 12. I'm very clear about my assignment this morning. So grateful for the, the measure of grace given to me. Um, you guys know I, I've been given uh, a, a certain time period to, to declare this word. And you guys can tell I, I, I am African American and I pastor in a context where, uh, oh, second service, okay, I, I pastor, so if you don't know what I mean, it's just, uh, uh, we're traditionally known for going a little longer uh, in our worship service, so um, I, I'm very grateful for the privilege uh, to be able to, to do this assignment this morning in speaking to you concerning such a great, most powerful, and such an important letter in the New Testament. And that is the letter of Paul to the church of Rome, the Roman church. Um, it's been said that Romans is the constitution for Christianity. And if Romans is the Christian constitution, Ephesians is our bill of rights. And so we have these two great books as a part of our theological bookends in Christianity. Romans, the constitution, Ephesians, the Bill of Rights. Meet me in Romans chapter 12. I'm going to give you two verses here which serve as really the linchpin for this entire letter. Uh, it is the practical theological piece of this letter. It flows from a systematic theological platform that Paul will give, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But right here it says, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you... Brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Some of your translations may say spiritual worship. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Your reasonable service of worship or your spiritual service of worship. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God is with that which is good and acceptable and perfect if i had a title the title would be this morning brainwashed brainwashed paul gives what is his practical theological treatise here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. From 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, it is his position on how the believer should live their life in light of the good news of the gospel. And so we have a platform for living beginning here at verse 12, but it, it flows from a larger, larger systematic theological treatise that he is given starting in chapter 1. And you know what Paul says in chapter 1. He declares that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is God's power unto salvation. In other words, that message, that great message of the gospel. It is what God uses as his power to bring men and women to salvation, to soften the hearts of men and women. That, that message which he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he says, you know the message, the good news, the gospel that I delivered to you, which is that Jesus Christ died, he was buried, that he rose again on the third day. That message, Paul now says in Romans chapter 1, that is the gospel that I'm not ashamed of, for it, that gospel, is the power of God towards salvation. And what he's saying here, beloved, is that he is not ashamed of this gospel in the face of what has become a society that has been spiraling downward. Because if you move a little forward, uh, further in chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, Paul begins to outline what we learned in seminary is called the slippery slope. In other words, uh, there was something that took place in society that began the spiraling downward, the spiraling downward to such a degree that God 
gave them over. He gave them over to such things. He gave them over to a depraved mind. They, the, the text says that they loved the creation over the creator. And in response to that, he began to judge them in their sin. Uh, it is called the slippery slope. He makes it, what's, what's hidden there is that the start of this slippery slope, the start of the, the downward spiral, is he says, he says, watch this, he says, they knew him through creation, they knew him through nature, they saw how wondrously they were created, but they did not give him glory. They did not give him thanks. And so I submit to you this morning that the start of the downward spiral in society, the slippery slope, starts with ingratitude. All, all pridefulness, all entitlement, it starts with in gratitude. They, they did not give thanks. They saw his wonder in creation, but they did not give thanks. They saw the wonder of the activity of their limbs, but they did not give thanks. They saw the birds. They saw the trees. They saw the ocean. They saw the, the, the wonderful grass, but they did not give thanks. Instead, they worship the creation over the Creator, and that led to certain behavior. We, the men began to do things that unnatural with men. Women began to do things unnatural with other women. I, it's in the text, amen. I know we don't like to talk about it uh, in today's time, but it's in, it's in the text. And this started from a place of ingratitude. And so Paul outlines the sin and where the world had come. And then he goes on to say, now look, he talks about to, to his Jewish brothers and sisters because the church at Rome consisted of both Gentile Christians, uh, newly converted Christian, Gentile, Gentile Christians and Jews. He says, now look, don't you be judging your Gentile brothers and sisters because you who sit in judgment, you do some of the same stuff. He says, you don't be, be real careful to my Jewish brothers and sisters. Don't you sit in judgment. Bottom line, both of you are wrong. Both of you are prideful. Both of you have been ungrateful. Both of you have missed the mark. He says, he says, he says, he says that God, God has, has up till now, he's been, watch this, passing over your sin. In other words, he, I, 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 like, I like the way uh, Eugene Peterson puts it sometimes, he says, you, 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 he winked at your sin. In other words, he did not bring down the hammer of judgment right, right away, but he's been long-suffering with you. He's been patient with you because he then goes on to say that it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. In other words, when you think about how patient he's been with you, that ought to lead you to repentance. When you think about how steadfast and how faithful and how long-suffering he could have taken you out. As a matter of fact, if justice would have had his way, I would have been wiped out a long time ago. But he's been so faithful. He's been so patient. His grace has sustained. His grace has kept me. Paul says it is because of his goodness. It is his goodness that will draw you in to repentance. He says he formerly passed over Sins, And then he goes on to tell them, he says to the Jews, this law that you hold so dearly, this is going to be the very law that judges you. And be careful because there are people right in your midst who don't have the Mosaic law like you do, but they still behave in such a way as though they had a law. And in other words, they did not have the commandments that you had, but they still know what is right and what is wrong. And they behave from a law that is placed in their heart. And so we learn something there, theological, and that is that man, that God has given man uh, a natural, a natural ability to understand what is right and what is wrong, even apart from the law. Because he says, he says they don't have the law, but they act and they do certain things as though they do have a law. And what does it say about you, who you have the law, but you don't act like you do have the law? He's confronting for them what has become a part of the modern day church, and that is what I call practical atheism. What do you mean by practical atheism? Well, if atheism means that I do not believe in God, practical atheism would suggest that I say I believe, but I behave like I don't believe. Did you, you missed it over here. Let me come over here. Maybe you'll get it. Let me get, 
if atheism means that I don't, if, if atheism declares that I do not believe that there is a God, practical atheism would declare that I say with my mouth I believe, but with my behavior I act like I do not believe. He's telling the Jews, he says, look, you've got the law, you've got the Mosaic law, you have that, and, and he gave that to you. You've been blessed with the oracles of the law, but there's a group in your church, they don't have the law like you have, but they behave as though they have a law unto themselves, and he's calling the Jews out for practical atheism. Then he goes on to, to declare that there's none righteous, none of you, Jew nor Gentile, none righteous, no, not one, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All, all have fallen short. There's none who seeks after God. All are ungodly, even at your best. Your righteousness is that of filthy rags. And then he gives us the message of hope. Paul says, Paul raises up the patriarch Abraham, and he uses Abraham as an example because he says Abraham believed God, and God accounted that belief in him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was justified by placing his faith in God. In other words, the fact that Abraham believed God, God called him just. God called him righteousness and gave him a righteousness that was not of his own. Now, here's the thing. Get the timeline correct. If you think about that story, he justifies Abraham in chapter 13, 13 or 14, but it is not until, watch this, he doesn't circumcised, get circumcised until chapter 17, which suggests, I'm talking about Genesis, which suggests, beloved, that Works did not save Abraham. He did not get circumcised until after he placed his faith in God. And so righteousness in response to faith came before the work of circumcision. And so Paul lifts this whole story up in Romans to say, watch this, that you are not saved by works. There's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. Watch this. There's nothing that you can do to earn or merit his favor. Favor. It is when you put your faith in God through his son, Jesus Christ, that God then declares in front of all of heaven that you are now seen as righteous. You've now been justified. All that the things that you've done in the past, he now counts you as standing right before him as a response to your faith. And then he goes on, Paul goes on to say, in chapter 6, he goes on, I mean chapter 5, he goes on to say that because of this, we now have peace with God. Christ has made peace. Christ is our peace. He has reconciled us back to the Father. And where sin tried to do so much, where sin tried to conquer, where sin abounded, grace did much more. Then he goes on to ask the question in chapter 6. He says, all right, now, grace did so much in chapter 5. He then goes on to say, but what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? What? That grace may abound. How can we continue in sin any longer when we have died to sin. He talks about the victory in our having died with Christ and risen with Christ. But yet there's still this struggle. Chapter 7, he says, when I would do good, evil's always there, right? I'm, I'm in this struggle. The good that I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I find myself doing. I see some kind of law working in my members that keeps me going from side to side. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this law? Oh, the, the, the answer comes in chapter 8. Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walketh not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And then Paul goes on to say that he has sent us the Spirit. He has given us the Spirit. We are indwelt with the Spirit. The third person of the Godhead has now taken up residence in us. He is our helper. He helps us in our weaknesses, even when I'm too weak to pray, even when I don't know what to pray about. Anybody other than me, I know you guys are real holy and spiritual out there, but anybody ever got to a place where you are spiritually fatigued, where you don't know what to pray, you don't have it in you to pray, and sometimes all you can do is groan, all you can do is moan. He says that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, will serve as your interpreter 
interpreter. That means that sometimes when I'm too tired and I don't have words to say, I'll go, mm, 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 mm. The Holy Spirit says that means that he needs some peace right through here. Sometimes I'll go, mm, 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 mm. The Holy Spirit will interpret that and say that means that he needs a financial breakthrough right through here. Mm, 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 mm. The Holy Spirit will say that means that he needs you to step in and intervene with his children right through. In other words, the Holy Spirit will interpret our prayers. And because we have the Spirit, we are not, we cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He goes on to tell us, tells us that those that he chose, he called, he then justified, and those that he justified, he goes, he, he glorifies. In other words, I stand before you right now in the already not yetness of God. I am glorified. I may not have a glorified body, but I have the personification of glorification in me through the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, he then goes on to say in chapter 9, he goes on to say, now listen, listen you Jews, that's that's real good news. That's good news for the Gentiles, but I want you to get it. Look, the water's great. Come on, you can dive right in. This is not just good news for them, but this is also good news for you because the same Messiah that saved them, saved them, he's the same Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach. He came to save you. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who came to save both Jew and Gentile. So he declares that, look, it is my desire that all of my Jewish brethren Get saved, that Jesus came to save you. He came to the house of David first, to the Jew first, and then what? To the Greek. So come on in, my brothers. Come on in, my sisters. The water is just great. That gospel message is just for you, just for you. In other words, he came to save you. Then he says to the Gentiles, he said, now look, don't you get puffed up over here because you got this good news. Don't you get so puffed up because you are in on it. Listen, God's just using you to provoke the Jews to jealousy. In other words, he still has them as the apple of his eye and as his chosen one. So don't you get puffed up. Uh, they have You have been grafted in uh, to that which is established for the Jews uh, because through the blood of Jesus Christ, I am creating one people out of two. So there's no longer Jew and Gentile, male or female, but in Christ all have become one. So right now, there are only two types of people. They're not blacks, whites, Latinos, Asians, male, female. There are two types of people. There are those who are saved and those who are not saved. And that is exactly how we must approach the gospel. It's not a black church. It's not a white church. It's not a Latino church. The question is, are you saved? Have you been redeemed? Is your name written in the book of life? He says, I'm making one people out of two. And yes, there's been a partial hardening for the Jews, but that's partial and it's temporary. I've got, I've, I, I, I've got a message for them. Is all Israel shall be saved. Then he goes on to say, now look, I know, I know you're confused right through here. He says, look, don't you try to understand everything I'm saying. He says, oh, the depths and the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again for, from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God. In other words, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 is a response to all that God has done from verse 1, from chapter 1 to chapter 11. He says, in light of what God has done for you in redemptive history, in light of what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, in light of his mercy, in light of the fact that he has made, watch this, in light of the fact that he's taken someone like you, not you, maybe, let me just talk about me personally because I, I, I know my own story. In light of the fact, Jody Moore, knowing all the stuff that you've done, knowing how you behaved in life, he didn't treat you like a second-class citizen. He has made you joint heirs with Christ. He has placed the spirit of sonship on you. He has adopted you so that you are now fully 
a part of the family. You're not a fragmented part of the family. You are not a stepchild, but that you have all the rights of sonship in light of that truth. Now let me tell you how you are to live. Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice. Three Greek words I want us to look at here in these two verses, and then I'll let you go. He said, I want you to present. That, that Greek word for present is the word peristomai, peristomai, present. I, you present, present. That word, that word means to give yourself totally by way of devotion and disposal to someone else's use. The Greek word peristomai, to present. Now, now, some of, how many of you in your translations you have the word offer uh, uh, that you are to offer? Anybody have the word offer? Show of hands. You got it. There, there it is. That, so, so, so those listening at that time, those listening at that time, they would be fully aware of what Paul is talking about because he's using words that speak of the sacrificial system. And so when he says present, he says present your bodies, the, the Greek word peristomai, present your bodies, they would have understood that word present from a technical aspect. It was a technical term. The word present, peristomai, present your bodies, a living sacrifice. Sir, can I borrow you for a minute over here? Uh, brother, could you stand for a minute? Let me, let me just borrow you for a minute. Uh, uh, they, they would have understood that the word present is technical, the, the Greek word peristomai. The, 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 the citizen, the person would have brought their offering, uh, the animal, to give it to the priest in order that the priest might offer it on the brazen altar on his behalf. And so the, the word present, so they, he would take the, the offering and he would give it to the priest, the priest, the priest. He would give it to the priest. The people hearing that word present in Romans chapter 12, they would understand what this meant. It was a technical term. The, the Greek word is peristomai. Uh, it meant to give your offering to the priest, but here, here I am. I'm handing this, which would be my offering, to the priest. This is not an offering yet. I have technically not presented my offering yet. They would have known what it meant when Paul says present your body. Because I have not truly presented my offering until I have taken my hand off of it. And now it is in the hands alone of the priest. Do you guys get it? I need you guys to get it. He says present your bodies. They would have understood what that word present meant. It's a, it's a technical term. Uh, 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 I, I have not presented the offering yet. The, the, this is not a presentation of the offering. Even though the priest is there, even though the priest has his hands on the offering, this is technically not a presentation. The offering is not technically presented until the priest has his hands on it, and I have my hands off of it. Are y'all praying with me in this house today? Thank you, sir. In other words, what Paul is saying is he says, look, you are, in light of everything that God has done for you, you are to present your bodies. In other words, you are to give yourself over and you are to take your hand off of your life. In other words, you no longer have right of ownership. I know that's real hard for us to understand in the West because we think we are entitled. I work for it. It's my body. It's my house. It's my this. Don't you know that we have right to ownership for nothing, but everything is given to us that we might be stewards over it. Everything belongs to God. It flows from God. It comes from God. It is God's. Our bodies belong to him. Paul says that you are to present your body as a living. You are to present it and take your hands off of it. Present your body in light of what God has done for you. Present your body in light of what he's done for you through Jesus on the cross. Present your body Give your life over. Take your hand off of it. See, I, I know some of you are just like me. I see the look on your face. You're like me. You, you, you like to help God out. You, you, you're helpers. You've got that helping ministry. 
You have that helping ministry. You want to help him out. You want to tell him how to drive the car. You want to tell him where. Matter of fact, my big, can I tell can I just share, can I be transparent with you? My biggest issue with God is, is this whole sovereignty thing. This idea that he does what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. Why? Because it pleases him to do so. I've got, see, I, I love God, but sometimes I don't like his sovereignty. I want him to check in with me. I'd like him to ask my opinion about, I, I'm a little disappointed that he doesn't ask my opinion about how my life should go. I have my own thoughts about my life. You notice I'm saying my life. But here he's saying in the redemptive plan of God, God has redeemed me. He purchased me with the precious currency of the blood of Jesus Christ, which means that I lose right of ownership over my life. Jesus is master. Jesus is Lord. And he has a right to determine my destiny. Amen? So he says, watch this. He says that you are to present your bodies. Now, uh, some translations uh, uh, um, mistranslate this, uh, uh, how it's written in, in the Greek, uh, because it, some translations, I believe it's the NIV, it'll say, present your bodies a living sacrifice, or present a living sacrifice. Um, actually, present your bodies modify the word living. So here's, here's how Paul actually writes. Here's how it was written in the original Greek. Here's how it was written in the original Greek. Present your bodies. Stop. Here's how you are to present your bodies. It is to be living. It is to be holy. And it is to be pleasing. You see it? So, so, so let me give it. So here's how, 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 how it would read. Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, that you present your body, stop. Let me tell you how you are to present your body. It is to be a living, a holy, and a pleasing sacrifice unto God. Living, holy, and pleasing. They would have listened to that, and again, having an understanding of the sacrificial system of that time, they would have had, as sometimes when I say things, my wife, she gets, uh, and a lot of times, most times during my preaching, she has this crinkle on her face. She keeps a crinkle on her face, which means, uh, I don't get it. Uh, she keeps a crinkle. They, they would have heard this, and there would have been the proverbial crinkle on the forehead because that would not have made sense to them that I'm to present an offering as a living sacrifice because they, knowing the sacrificial system of that time, they would have understood that the priest brings the offering, and it would have been alive. You bring it alive, it's flapping around. You bring it alive to the altar, and then when you get it on the altar, you try to place it down, and he would then take the knife and kill the offering, and then place, watch this, the dead sacrifice on the altar, burn it and consume it with fire so that as the offering is consumed, the smoke would rise up as a sweet-smelling savor in the nostril of God. So anybody listening to this, they would have not gotten the fact that he says that you are to give an offering, present the offering as a living sacrifice because they would have imagined the thing going off in the hand. But at some point in time, it is killed. Then you put the dead sacrifice on the altar. Paul is saying that we have moved into a different dispensation. In other words, uh, we are now under a new covenant. That system is not applicable here, for Christ is the ultimate sacrifice given on the cross. You don't hear me in this house. He died a painful death that has been paid. And those of us who are in Christ, we died with him, but we also what rose with him. So right now we live resurrected lives. So Paul is not advocating for a dead body on the altar. He's advocating for a fully alive 
alive body, totally dedicated to God, wholly devoted to God. In other words, he wants your live ears, your live head, your live mouth, your live hands, your live mind, your live heart. He wants you fully alive for the good use that he would have for you in advance advancing the kingdom. In other words, he wants your fully alive, resurrected body, totally sold out, totally dedicated with your hands off of it, totally given over to him that he might dictate, direct, and determine the good use for your fully alive, resurrected life. That's what he's saying. So, so what Paul is actually, watch what Paul is, Paul, is, Paul is saying here. Paul is saying here that you are to live as though dead. You are to live your fully alive life, but you are to live it as though you are dead. I've done a many a funeral. And I've never seen a dead person walk in by himself. Someone carries him in. I've been in a many a funeral line, heading from the church over to Rose Hill to perform the gravesite. And the dead person never took an Uber from the church. Someone puts him in the car, drives him, carries him or her. Matter of fact, unless they put in the wheel what they want to wear. One day my wife is going to pick out my best suit, what she thinks is my best suit. She'll determine what I wear. The, in other words, in other words, the dead person makes no decisions for themselves. You are to live as though dead. In other words, watch this. God, through his son and through the word, is now directing your movement, directing your life, telling you where to go, what to do, what your assignment is, what your vocation is. In other words, I no longer have right of ownership over my life. Present yourselves living. Then he says holy, that you are to be what? Set apart. I'm set apart for his good use he has purchased me. He used the precious currency of, of the blood of his son. That means that he now has right to dictate. He now has right to order the steps of my life. I, I, I am now set apart wholly for his good use. He, he does with me as he chooses. See, I think one of the, one of the reasons that the, the current modern day church, especially out here in the West, I've traveled to Africa, I've spent time in South Africa and Tanzania, but especially in the churches in South Africa that's birthed out of suffering and birthed out of, of pain from apartheid. I think in the West we've, 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 we've gotten such an entitlement mindset, beloved, that we bring to this thing called Christianity a, a, such a high sense of self-worth and value that we believe that we have our own wisdom to order the steps of our lives. And what God is saying, no, no, when you come to this, you surrender your mind, you surrender your hearts to me, you, you, you come before me broken at the altar, and you allow me to reshape your life, and you allow me to speak into you the value that I've purposed for you through the cross of Jesus Christ living and holy. Then he says, acceptable, pleasing. Some of your translations say pleasing. That word, to be acceptable, it flows from the first two. That you're living, that you've given yourself totally to God, 100%. You're not compartmentalizing your life. You've not decided you're going to let him lord over this area, but you're not going to allow him to lord over this area. You've given him your total self. You set yourself apart for him. Now he says that's pleasing. Why? Because it is in doing that that you glorify him. You please him by glorifying him. Now, there's only one place in the Gospels 
that gives us the best picture of what it means to glorify God. It is when Jesus prays his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 4, you don't have to turn to it. Jesus says, Jesus says to the Father, I have glorified you. I have glorified you in that I have finished the work. I have finished the work. In other words, watch this. The only, that's the best picture of what it means to glorify God. His sub, I think Eugene Peterson's translation is, I have completed to the fullest my assignment. So the way, how do you glorify God? It's not just about clapping your hands. It's not just about worshiping. How do you glorify God? You glorify God when you know your assignment, you do your assignment, and you complete your assignment. It is when you finish the work that God has given you to do. That is what it means to glorify him. He says, I have glorified my father. How did you glorify him? I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Many of us start work and we might do it, but we either do it half-heartedly or we don't finish it. That is not how you glorify God. Whatever your assignment is in the kingdom, whatever your assignment is in this ministry, it doesn't mean that you just start doing it. It means that you do it. You do it to the fullest. You do it with excellence and you do it until completion, until God releases you from that assignment. He says, I've glorified you in that I have finished the work that you've given me to do. He says, I want you to present your body. It needs to be living. It needs to be set aside. And it needs to be a life that glorifies God and that whatever he has assigned you to do in that body that he has redeemed, in that body that he has purchased with his blood, whatever he has assigned you to do, you are to do it wholeheartedly. You are to do it with gusto. You are to do it with joy. You are to do it as unto the Lord. And you are to finish the assignment that he has given you. He then says, this is your reasonable Worship. Some of your translations say spiritual worship. The, the Greek word for reasonable or spiritual is the Greek word logikos. Logikos in the Greek, it is where we get our English word logical. That's why some of your translations have it as reasonable. That is, it is re something that you have reasoned out. In other words, we don't bring, uh, we don't leave our brains at the door, amen? Uh, uh, this Christianity is not some sort of emotional decision, but this thing that I do for Christ, the fact that I've given my life for Christ. I've been sold out for him since I was nine years old. This thing started for me when I was nine. I had keys to the church when I was 12 years old. I've been working hard since I was nine. I was cleaning toilets. I was cleaning the restrooms. I was serving some. some we used to sell fish fries back in the day. I've been serving the church since I was nine years old. And listen to me, this thing that I've dedicated my life to, it is not from some sort of uh, emotional fantasism. No, beloved, I have thought this thing out. I have reasoned this thing out. God has been so good to me, it is only reasonable that I respond by giving him my whole life, by giving him my whole service, by leaving it all on the field. God has been so good to me, it is only right, it is only reasonable that I give him all the days that I have left. Uh, I, I, I said this before, and I'll say it again. Many of you, especially, I was a little reserved here. Uh, uh, if you were to come over to, to Praise Tab uh, during worship, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I kind of, I'm very active. I lift up holy hands, and you may catch me, you know, running across here at the stage. Uh, I, I'll kneel at the altar. I saw Pastor Josh doing that today. I, I'll clap holy hands. I'll, I may jump up and down. You may see tears flowing from my eyes, and 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 some observer may come in and say, "Wow, he." He sure is being emotional. He's being pretty emotional. Let me clarify for you right now, beloved. When you see me jumping up and down, when you see me running across the altar, when you see me crying, when you see me shouting, yeah, it is emotional, but it did not start there. That emotion is my ending place. At some point in time, I thought about the goodness of God. I thought about how I've messed up in life. I 
I thought about the fact that I was a fornicator at one time. I thought about the fact of how many lies I've told throughout life. I thought about how many times I've manipulated through life. I thought about the times when I was a womanizer. Oh, y'all don't want to hear me preaching there because you've been real holy all your life. But I'm coming by to tell you that I've not always been so good. I've not always been so holy. I've not always been a preacher. When I think about the times when I growing up in Compton, when I was going to Compton High School football games, hanging out with Crip gangsters, how I could have been killed and how I could have been shot. When I began to do the math and when I began to connect the dots and when I began to think it through, I realized that if it had not gone because of God's power and mercy in my life, I would not be standing here today. I should not be standing here clothed and in my right mind, much less declaring the gospel. I should not be married for almost 18 years. I should not have beautiful children. I should not have a church, but I should be dead in my grave. So when you see me dancing, when you see me shouting, it's because I have thought it through. I have reasoned it out. I have calculated it. I have done it. I have connected the dots and realized if it had not been for the goodness of the Lord by my side, I would not be standing here today. It's because Oh, I'd come by to tell you, I know it looks crazy. I know I look funny running through here. But let me tell you, my dance is very logical. My shout is very logical. My tears are very logical. I've thought through what God has done for me and realized he's been good. Am I talking to somebody in this house? Has he been good to you? Has he blessed you? Has he brought you through? Well, you ought to praise him in this house. Give him glory. You're not being emotional. You're being logical. You're not being emotional. You've thought this thing through. He said that's the most reasonable thing. Then he goes on to say, as I prepare to close it out, Here's what I want you to do. Present your bodies. Here's what I want you, don't want you to do. Do not be conformed to this world. The Greek word there, shishka matizo, means to form or mold. Do not conform. Do not be molded. Do not be formed by this world. Two words for world, usually cosmos and aeon. Cosmos speaks of a particular order, diabolical, satanic order, the world. Aeon speaks of the philosophy of this time, the philosophy and the ways of thinking of this age, that which says what is right, that which says what is wrong? It is the philosophy of this age, the word aeon. So when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, he's actually using the Greek word aeon. Do not be conformed to the thinking, to the philosophy, to the ways of reasoning of this age, an age that calls what is wrong right, that calls what is right wrong. Do not be conformed to the values of Beyonce. Do not be conformed to the values of, uh, of, 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 of certain media stars. Do not be conformed by the values of Britney Spears. Do not be conformed by the values that you see on the news, the values that you see in the newspapers or on TV. Do not be conformed by the values of pop culture. He says, he says, he says, he says, look, he says, do not conform to the values of this age. That word, that word conform is the picture of a mold. How many of you ever seen a jello mold? So you know what a jello mold is. You pour the jello in the mold, and then when you take it out, the jello has what? Look, it looks like what? The mold that you poured the jello in. That's the picture that Paul is giving here. And it's in the passive voice of the Greek, the passive. In other words, he's saying, be real careful because if you don't tend to your mind, if you do not do the maintenance on your mind, if you don't watch out, you will be molded 
your thought process, your thinking, your way of seeing things, your perspective will be shaped by the values of this world's system. And in doing that, it will have bearing on the choices that you make. It will have bearing on the decisions that you make. It will have bearing on your worldview. Do not be conformed. Do not allow your mind to be molded and shaped according to the values of this world. Instead, be transformed be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transform. The Greek word there is metamorpho, where we get our English word metamorphosis. It speaks of a radical change on the inside that takes place to such a degree that it has bearing on your external behavior. Be transformed. In other words, by the renewing of your mind. That word renewing speaks of ongoing activity. Basically, he's saying that you are to watch this. You are to, on an ongoing basis, have your mind influenced and renewed by the word of God. And in doing that, your behavior will change. Because there will be this metamorphosis that will take place on the inside. And from that, you will be able to discern that which is acceptable and right and pleasing to God. Amen? Let me ask this question now as I prepare to take my seat. Has anybody seen, and I, um, I think we had one or two people last service who saw this. Anybody seen the movie? Let me see if I get at least one person here. Anybody seen the movie Get Out? Oh, okay. Oh, God. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I, your old buddy right there. Back in the. Oh, my God. Thank you. Only one or two people. Last service. All right. You said the movie Get Out. Okay. For those, I'm not going to give it all away. But, but those who've seen it, watch where I'm going here. You'll see exactly where I'm going. Those who haven't seen it. I won't give it all away. So the story, the movie is about a young man who's dating a girl, and the girl takes um, him to meet her parents. The mom is a psychiatrist, and she specializes in hypnosis. The young man is a chain smoker. I'm, I'm, I'm intentionally leaving stuff out because I don't want to, you know, I don't want, I told this story at my church and I saw one girl. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to go see the movie. So I'm, try, I'm trying to, I'm intentionally leaving stuff out. So, so he's a chain smoker and she talks to him about, you know, you with my daughter and you are smoking. I can fix that. He's like, uh, I'm good. I'm cool. You don't, you know. Well, at some point in time, he gets into her chair, and as a psychiatrist, she sits across from him, and she begins stirring her tea, and the noise of the the stirring of the tea causes him to go into a hypnotic trance, and he goes into something that is called the sunken place. And while in the sunken place, she speaks subliminally to him so that when he comes out of the sunken place, he no longer has an appetite for cigarettes. Matter of fact, he sees the cigarettes, he's like, oh, ew, it's, it's, it's nasty to him. He no longer has it. Why? Because while he was in the sunken place, the mother, by what she spoke, some of you already see where I'm going, reprogrammed his mind. Paul says, I feel it, y'all. He says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of 
your mind. When you take time to get into the word of God and allow it to have its work, it does not take you to the sunken place, but it takes you to the higher place. And it is while you are at the higher place, the father, not the mother, but the father begins to speak to you and to your spirit through his word and you don't even know that he's changing and reprogramming you. It's just once you come up out of the, the high place, having spent time with him, you just begin to realize over time that the stuff that you used to like before, you don't like anymore. The stuff that you used to gravitate to, you don't, am I the only one? The stuff that I used to like, the stuff that used to give me pleasure, the stuff that I used to gravitate to, I no longer gravitate to it. Why? Because I've spent some time in the higher place and the Father, while sitting on his throne, stirring what might have been the blood in a cup, as he stirred and spoke to me through his word, he was changing my life. He was reprogramming me. He was shaping my thinking. He was reorienting my thinking so that I no longer like the stuff that I used to like that displeased him. My priorities were changed. What I loved changed. I began to love what he loves and hates what he hates. I began to want to do the things that pleased him. Why? Because while in the higher place in his word, he got into my mind and he changed my way of thinking. He reprogrammed. Yeah, I've come by to tell you I have been brainwashed. I know it's a negative in some, but for me, it's a positive. He has gotten a hold of my mind. He has gotten a hold of my heart so that I'm sold out for him. I only want to live for him. I only want to please him. I want to go where he wants me to go. I want to do what he wants me to do. I want to be what he wants me to be. I am completely sold out because he has gotten a hold of my mind through his word. So now I'm able to approve that which is pleasing to him. Now, when he says so you are able to approve, I don't want you to miss Paul's thrust there because it does not stop with cognition. And that's where most of the church ends. We can approve and discern what is right, but it's not just approving and discerning what is right. It is approving what is right and then applying what is right. We have to apply this to our lives so that we live out in a manner that is pleasing to him. How we handle our authorities, how we handle leaders, how we handle each other, how we manage our gifts. That's all 14, uh, uh, 13, 14, 15, and 16 of Romans. It is a response to how we live out our lives when our minds come under the control of God through his word. Be not transformed. Be not conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God bless you.